and welcome to Various Things. My name is Gary Long. Today's interview is with Noah Scalen. Noah is an artist whose work requires him to wear many hats. He's a professor at VCU teaching future graphic designers how to find their own ethical voice. He runs the design agency Another Limited Rebellion. He's written and published a few books on some of his art projects, perhaps most notably his book Skulls, and on top of all this, takes creativity and ethics to music with the group League of Space Pirates. I had a great time talking with Noah, and hope you enjoy listening to it. This interview is split up into four parts. This is part one. Enjoy. You've been making a lot of things, um, art and, and design. So, uh, would you consider yourself an artist? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I grew up as an artist. I, you know, I think it's interesting because it's a term that some people are afraid to apply to themselves. Like they're like, "Well, I'm not a real artist, or I don't do whatever." And I've never had that problem because both my parents are artists, and mm-hmm. I was raised in an art environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the anecdote I tell people often is that when I was a kid and people would come over like elementary school and I'd say, oh, let's go play in the studio. And they'd say, well, what's the studio? And it was like somebody had said to you, what's a kitchen or what's a living room? I mean, you're like, that's the, you know, the room in your house where you make art. Right. That was just a given to me. I really didn't know that other people didn't have that. You know, wow. It was just always a space to make art, and you always had access to materials, and there was no rules about them, and, you know, I was always playing with, like, permanent markers as a kid. I mean, it's just stuff that, you know, now, like, I probably wouldn't have let my kid play with permanent markers, but I'm glad <laughs> my parents did. You know, I mean, the thing was that it was, like, that's just how it was. We had materials, and we could do anything we wanted and, and, and create all the time, and so it's funny because I just was like, yeah, I'm an artist. I, there was no question. So from and, the very beginning? Oh, yeah, from, from, from day one. And it's interesting because then obviously, you know, once I got into my career and I was doing graphic art mostly for people because art was something that I was doing periodically, you know, you get an exhibition, be part of a show or whatever. And so really people thought of me as like a graphic designer because that's what I was doing. But I always knew I was an artist. And it was weird to me that people didn't know that. And then I realized, oh, you have to put it out there and tell people and make a point of it. And so now I'm a little more like, yes. My job is as an artist. I happen to do, you know, one of the things I can do is graphic design, uh, which is, for me, is a means of being creative, using my art skills, and getting paid by clients. I've heard artists say that, that graphic design, is, you know, because of the commercial nature or whatever, it's it's below art. And I've heard um, commercial people say that art is, is almost too elitist. You know, and it, like like if you look at the works of like uh, Shepard Fairey or someone like that, like uh, that strikes me as kind of like a more modern approach to art, almost, and, and that it, it it kind of tries to take the aspects of graphic design and, and as a thing that is in the commercial, like popular culture thing, and kind of almost tries to destroy the elitism of art. Like, I mean, how does your perception of like art and popular culture? I guess, exist. Like, how do you think those two things work together? Yeah, wow, that's a big, a big sort of topic. There is a huge difference between what I would call fine art and commercial art, and that's okay. the term I would use. And the reason I say that is that, you know, fine art, theoretically, is an artist makes a thing because they feel like it, mm-hmm. and then it's, you know, displayed in a gallery or museum or somebody buys it and then just puts it in their home. And maybe they've been commissioned to make a piece, so then it gets a little more confusing because they're still making what they want to make, but they've been asked to make it, and that's very 
you know, that's the history of art. There's always that artists had patrons, people that, you know, paid them to make their pieces, and that's how they survived. Um, but then you've got commercial art, which is truly a different thing because it's not what the artist wants to make. It's what they, um, is needed to convey a message visually. Um, so it's a very technical thing to do commercialize. You really have a job, which is to sell some idea or thing using uh, a very powerful skill, which is visual communication. It, it, people don't really understand how it works because most people just see stuff and they respond emotionally to it. And so it's very that's where it's an interesting place to work because you're really, you know, you could be you could be manipulating people and. and something I talk a lot to about my, when I have my students at my Design Rebels class, is about, you know, the power that designers wield. We like to think that we're all above this idea of, of being manipulated by, you know, commercial culture, and yet the reality is that we grew up in it, most of us, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it, is, it is truly burned into our brains. You know, the term branding comes from literally branding cows, putting the logo onto the side of the cow. We are being branded, you know, in our brain. These images are seared in there and there's no way, no matter what you are doing, to escape that other than being conscious about it. So, in our culture, you know, again, if you were raised somewhere where you just didn't encounter this stuff, fair enough. But anybody I know who's an activist, I can still drill down and find these warm associations with some things that they may really hate now because <laughs> they were grew up with right. The example I use is, is Coke versus Pepsi. I can pretty much guarantee you're going to have a preference. Whether or not you drink soda anymore or like either of those companies, you probably like one over the other because there's some association from your childhood right. to those products. That's what that stuff is. The level of power this stuff wields over us. It is Interesting. And so I tend to you know, think about this idea of commercial art as something that it's great because if you want to sell an idea about fairness, about justice, there's a great way to do it. You know, you can use a really powerful skill to do it. You can also sell a bunch of crap that way, too. And you can convince people they feel to feel terrible about who they are and what they look like and where they're from and what they sound like. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an intense conversation where you really go down this path. But the thing for me is, like, you know, that's a very different thing to, to sell concepts, to sell products using um, visual imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's type and image. That's that's a skill, and you have to learn how to do that, and, and then it's a useful thing. And so it's hard because fine art generally is a visual thing as well. I and mean, we're talking about you know painting, photography, sculpture. You know, music obviously falls into a different place and still has an emotional connection. We could go into that, but you know, so there's a lot of overlap between the two. And so it's like somebody like Shepard Fairey. You know, he's got a graphic design background. He's using the tools of graphic design, but he's making art. Sometimes, and sometimes he's making graphic design, but his stuff jumps between those, and I think a lot of people do that, and I certainly play with that, and I think that that's where it gets confusing, is, is you know, because a lot of this stuff is shared, a lot of this, the skills are shared, a lot of the, you know, people get confused about what these things are, but to me, they're, they're distinctly different, and there isn't a hierarchy. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, there is a sense of people being like, well, art is more pure in some way, but again, the history of it isn't. Um, and in the same sense that, like, you know, graphic art, you know, commercial art is, is I don't know, you know, that it's tainted because it's about money is also not necessarily true. You know, so I think that there's there's a lot of misconceptions about them. And I think that, you know, they're both 
very powerful in different ways. Because art as well can be used not as much to sell a concept, but more to make people reflect, think about things. Um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I was always fascinated by was when um, George W. Bush was trying to sell the war in Iraq, and he had Colin Powell at the United Nations um, sort of pitching a story of why we should be doing this. There was this mural, Garnica, uh, which is like this, there was a, it's actually a tapestry remake of a painting. And it's a painting about the horrors of war uh, in, in, I guess it was in Spain. And they covered it with a curtain before, so that it wouldn't be the background of his speech. Because they understood how powerful this artwork was. You're you talking know, about Garnica? Deny, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you know that paint? Do you know the painting? Uh, oh, yeah. They, I, did, I did not realize they covered it. Wow. Oh, yeah. They pulled a curtain in front of it because, you know, they're going to claim, well, it's a busy background for whatever. Yeah, except that it's always been out there for every other thing. Wow. Because if you, you don't want people's contorted faces of terror behind someone who's saying, yay, war is a great idea. This is going to do something good for us. They understood the power of art. And so it's interesting because I think it gets dismissed a lot because they don't want you to realize how powerful it could be. You know, art, oh, it's the latest thing, or it's something that's just, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's frivolous. We don't give any, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to fund any of it. We don't want to have art school. We don't, you know, we don't want students to learn it in high school. You know, that's just a waste of money. So it's interesting because it's like it's a super important, very powerful, wonderful thing that's been around for, you know, as long as we've had culture, art has been important. And, and yet, I think we live in an era, especially in America, I should say, where art is so dismissed as this, you know, thing for only rich people and for something that's just, if you happen to, you know, have free time when you're not busy working and making money and doing all the important things. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's definitely you know, a, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a propaganda technique to do that. Of course, propaganda is built into, you know, the other side of that, using commercial art to, to sell ideas. And that concludes part one of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on May 13, 2014. Things in part two of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. Enjoy. For my my friend was in your class years ago, uh, Dan Tello, and um, he he described kind of your your class to me when he was going through it. And it seemed almost like a gun safety course for <laughs> becoming a graphic designer. You know, I've never <laughs> heard it described that way, but now I'm going to have to use that description. I love that, like the, gun because it, it, it's a tool, like you said. Like it can be, you can sell a war with it, or you can sell Absolutely. peace with it. And Absolutely. where did you come to to the point of being like a socially conscious? Uh, graphic designer, like what happened that made you realize like 
there's a need for that kind of conversation amongst the uh, graphic design. Well, it's funny because the answer is the same as being an artist is that my my mom, especially, my, was an activist when I was young and still is. And so I was raised to, like, literally, I was going to protest marches in a stroller being pushed and then, you know, on roller skates when I was a little bit older um, to, to, to march for the things that we cared about and to try to advocate for change in our world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you want to have, like, a sales pitch for, for good parenting, <laughs> it's that, like, you know, you can share this stuff and, and my, you know, their entire lives are going to be affected by it. And so, uh, yeah, I grew up believing I was an artist and making art and also believing I could change the world by being an activist. And I've done that ever since. And it's hard because I have to recognize a lot of people didn't aren't that lucky to have gotten that and have to figure it out later in life and, and, and discover it along uh, it's often a difficult path. So I'm privileged in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just always knew that you advocated for the things that you believed in, you agitated for the things that you believed in, you spoke up. And when I was in college, which was really about, you know, for me it was like, oh, I've got to learn some skills so I can have a job. Right. And that was just me feeling practical. I mean, my parents were like that because they were like, you can go to art school. And I'm like, no, I want to study something more practical, uh, which is funny because I studied theater design, which is only relatively more practical, but <laughs> much, much more practical to me because I was like, there's a job that actually exists as opposed to being like a fine art painter, which there is no career path other than doing something else like teaching, right. um, developing that work. And, and so then in the course of being a school, I realized how much I like doing graphic design. Uh, more than just the theater design. And so I got out of school ready to do that. But then right as I was graduating school, realized that like people had this expectation that at that moment in your life, you give up all your beliefs and you just go to work because you've got to make money now and you've got to make a living. Your parents aren't going to support you and you've got to keep a roof over your head. And, and I was like, whoa, what? No, this is a terrible plan. Like no, my whole life, I believe that you, you know, you, you advocate for change and do good things and you make the world a better place. And, there's got to be a way to do that and still make this living that you just happen to have to make because that's how our society works. So I was like, I, I've got to put this together and figure this out. And so the socially conscious design piece came from me saying, I like doing graphic design. It's fun. Um, it uses my creative skills and allows me to make money. Um, but it is also this really powerful thing, and so it's got to merge with my ethics. So I'm going to make up a way to do this. Okay. So when I got out of school, I started freelancing with this concept of socially conscious design, and I started working full-time for other people doing graphic design, building up my skills. And then it took me six years of working for other people to to just go out and do my own business full-time uh, as my job so that I was just making socially conscious design as my career. And that's ALR design? And that's another limited rebellion, yeah. Okay. And so when did the VCU thing start? Like, when did you decide, like, hey, I'm going to teach folks how to do, basically, how to how to kind of have those ethics? Yeah, and, well, it, it, it started around the time I started my company because I, had, I was living up in New York for a decade, running my business um, as a freelance thing while working with other people. And when I realized I was going to do this full time and that, you know, making a choice to run a socially conscious business, especially this was in the late 90s at this point, you know, it was pretty unusual, and I and people were like, how are you going to make a living? And I thought, well, the way I'll do it is to go where the living is cheap. 
uh, I'll go back home because Richmond is a very affordable place. I know my parents were here and I could do laundry at their house and eat their food if I had to. Right. <laughs> you know, I was like very practical. Like I'm like, I'm going to set out and try a very unusual form of business that wasn't the common thing at all then. It's becoming more common now, but certainly then it was really not common. And was like, this will be a great place to do it. Richmond's a wonderful incubator because of its affordability and you know, its great quality of living. So I was like, okay, I'll come back home and do this. And so as part of that, I was like, well, I need some side money uh, as I'm developing this business further. And, and my dad was teaching at BCU and actually had taken over at that point um, the assistant chair role in, his, in the graphic design department. And so he said, well, do you want to come teach here? part-time. I said, sure, that'd be great. You know, Phil and I like teaching and I like sharing information. So I just was teaching like the software that we use in graphic design. And then as I was doing it, I was making a project for the students and they were all like really political because I was like, well, I can make any project. If you just learn how to use Illustrator or Photoshop, I can teach you by having you do something I think is interesting. So mm-hmm. I'd have them make parody logos of corporations that told the truth about them or I'd have them, you know, play with you know, whatever issues I thought that they needed to think about. Um, and so it was like, I realized in doing that, that they weren't getting any of this information that I was basing my business on. Like I was basing this concept of, of running a business socially conscious on the fact that, you know, design is this really powerful tool and generally no one talks about it. And so then I said, I pitched the concept of the class. I said, can I do a class about ethics and design? And the outgoing chair at that point was like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and, like, literally no one knew for a few years what I was teaching. It was kind of great. Um, uh, not that I was hiding from them, but just everybody was sort of like, oh, you know, sure, you, you know, your dad taught here, and we trust you to teach. I taught his class for a while. I, they were just like, okay, that sounds good, you know. So it was wow. kind of great because I had this opportunity to just talk about what I thought was important. But I was really, you know, and the class to this day is ne- has never been about me trying to teach my set of ethics, as much as I would love everyone to believe and care about the same things I do. I'm mm-hmm. really more interested in, in encouraging people to understand that they do have beliefs that are important to them, that they do care about things, and that they can affect the world with this set of skills, however they choose. And this is a, you know, that's a difficult thing to, to decide to do it, not as, um, you know, I think in a school setting, like I'm not trying to advocate for a specific set of beliefs. I'm trying to advocate for working based on your beliefs, whatever they may be. Mm. And that may be beliefs I don't necessarily agree with. However, I do believe that if everybody acted ethically, whatever their ethics were, we'd still be in a better world, even if I don't necessarily agree with them, even if your, your set of ethics comes from a different uh, religious or cultural place than mine. It's an, it's an interesting area to be in, I think, because there is this tendency of business to alienate the worker from themselves as a political, ethical human being. Um, and so I, I think I can appreciate that from that perspective of like seeing that um, you're actually creating this discourse, especially in an area that is such, so relevant for what we deal with t- today. Cause probably a hundred percent of the things that we interact across with people are graphically designed, um, being in a visual age and this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Did you ever catch any like flack for <laughs> running this class from the administration or anything? Is that something you don't want to talk no. about? Or? <laughs> you know, I think, I mean, schools, you know, historically, or at least in, historically in the recent, you know, last few 
last hundred years, schools have always been this hotbed of sort of, you know, people always think they're being liberal in, in that way of, of, like, you know, there are places where you're supposed to be thinking about the bigger messages of, of, of whatever your field is. Um, it's not trade school. You're not supposed to be just learning a skill that you can just apply directly. You're supposed to be thinking bigger, mm-hmm. uh, even as an undergraduate. Um, and so, you know, obviously, I think there's a sense of, like, oh, there's a 60s radicalism in, in college. I think that's changed a good deal. I definitely think, that, you know, they're not like that anymore where the kids are all protesting. It, in some some schools, they still are, but um, it's still fairly harmless to people when it's in the school setting, so I don't think it's that radical in that way. Like, people aren't like, you know, you're shaking things up too much. It, and I think that I could even go further. I think I could come in there and be like, I'm a crazy, you know, Marxist and you need to believe X, Y, and Z. And, and I probably still would be like, oh, it's a teacher and that's what they're teaching. And I'm like, go out of my way to be like, I respect whatever your belief said. Right. Bring in here. <laughs> like, I'm actually very like, which is funny because it really makes me annoyed when a student doesn't get that, when a student later says, well, he, you know, he has this, that, the other agenda. And I'm like, look, I, I'm straight up at the beginning. I have a very specific set of beliefs. I'm not trying to tell you to believe mine, but I do need to, you to question everything you, that you encounter. Not the stuff I tell you as well as the stuff that you're getting in the rest of the world. The point is that you tend to only get one side of the story. I'm trying to give you the extreme opposite so that you can then decide where you stand. It's all gray. It's all, you know, there's all gray scale. You have to figure out where you reside on it. You have to make choices intentionally. Mm-hmm. And then see how you move forward. And I've had students come up to me later and go, I don't, I don't know what to buy anymore. Like, I, like they're like, I, now I'm thinking about everything. I'm like, perfect. Like, that's the place I want you to be in. Like, I want you to have to make a choice. I don't want you to be able to blindly go through this life accepting the way it is. You can consciously accept the way it is. That's your choice. But you'll have to make it a conscious choice. That's why I call it social consciousness. Like, my, I'm very interested. There's other terms for it, you know. Mm-hmm. But I really like that term. Because it's not about, it is about this awareness of what's happening around you and having to intentionally make choices. And that concludes part two of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on May 13th, 2014. things in part three of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. Enjoy. So with the Skull a Day book, um, did that just start as a project you were doing every day? When, when did the idea to actually make a book come into it? So the Skeleton Project, uh, I started in, um, it was the summer of 2007. And so I basically was, like I said, I was in this place where I was kind of stuck creatively and just feeling like unloaded. And I usually have a side project. And at that point, I just had a music project collapse. And so it was like, I think it was in May, it fell apart. And so like it was the next month was June and I was like, oh, I need something. And then this idea popped in my head and so I started doing it. And it was only like a few weeks into the project that it got really popular online. It was crazy, way out of hand, because I was not expecting it. 
And so then a few months I was like, man, I really like the work I'm making. It would be fun to have a book, but I don't know how to do this. So I kind of put that out to the world on the site. And then right at the same time, I got an email from a woman who said, well, I'm a book publishing agent. Um, would you like to put a book out? Oh, and then I, she goes, the next email, I was like, oh, I see you do. Uh, and so I struck up this relationship and, and long-term friendship now with my agent who helped me sell the book uh, concept. So the book got signed up and, and the deal got struck. Like I was only partway through my year of doing Skulls and the book came out right at the end because of the nature of doing books is very long time frame. You have to, you know, as well as designing it, then it has to go off to be printed and take forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, do, I was involved in making a book starting like not even halfway into the Skull Day project. Um, after that book came out, I then did a series of other books um, about doing creative projects in a variety of ways, about sort of sharing bigger ideas rather than just the artwork. Um, and so I kind of got into the world of making books, uh, which I enjoy. I like having, you know, again, starting before about means of getting information out to people. Like, it, the book is a great format. A lot of people encounter it. And um, a couple of my other books have been translated to other languages, so I know that people in China have encountered oh, wow. the 365 idea. And I've got emails from China from people saying, oh, I found your book, and I'm inspired and I'm doing this creative work. Um, can you tell me some things to look at because I can't look at your website online because it's blocked. Oh my yeah, God. I mean, yeah. And it's like, and I write them back and I'm always like, I, I don't even know how to help you, but I'm so happy that what I did got to you, <laughs> you know, that reached you through this book that got translated. And, and so that's happened a few times. I've gotten people, you know, emails from people all over the world who've encountered in their language, this concept about doing daily projects uh, through these other books, not, not just skeletal. Um, and then I did a book recently that was about the design activist stuff that we've been talking about a lot of. And now I'm in the midst of making another book about the Skull Project. And that first Skulls book actually is out of print because that was so many years ago. Mm-hmm. So we're about to do a new one. Um, it's kind of exciting. I'm working with Chop Suey Books here in Richmond, which is an independent bookseller. They're partnering with me to produce a, the first time actually, a hardcover book of the entire Skull Day project. It was always online, still online, but in book form, it's only ever been pieces of it. And so I'm really excited because we're, we're doing this uh, independent publishing release using, you know, making a relationship rather than with a big publisher. It's now with, with the bookstore um, that's a local independent bookstore to make a book that's what, you know, the vision of the project I've always had about sharing it, uh, another opportunity to get it out to people. Wow. So these new books that you've been working on, like, these are like writing books, like, like you sat down and wrote. A yeah. Book. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm an author in the sense that I publish books, but I'm definitely not, you know, a writer in that I, I write novels or something. And so the, the books that came out after Skull's first one was called 365, a daily creativity journal. And that one is, is a journal. And I basically get up an essay at the beginning. I'm talking about the concept of, of doing daily projects. And then there's a bunch of prompts. Uh, the book after that was called Unstuck, and it was 52 creative projects. So I wrote you know, the, the prompts for how to do these projects and little descriptions of them, and then there's an essay. So there, there's writing in them, but they're not necessarily, uh, again, they're not like large novels of nonfiction right. writing or something. But uh, how hard was that for you to do? I mean, are you, are, are, are you, do you generally write? I things. can write. I, yeah. I, I, you know, I do a lot of small writing as part of my work as a as a graphic artist because you know you end up writing some copy here and there. So I have this, the ability to, but I don't have the the pension for it. Like I don't want to write. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing. I think even writers will tell you that. Like people whose job it is to write, mm. like, you got to really like you have to clear out your your mental and physical space to the point where you can sit and just 
focus really hard for hours on just whatever's in your head in a way that is different with making art. I have music playing when I'm making art or I can, you know, doing design, I can listen to podcasts. Like, I have to have dead silence. I can't have any interruptions. It's got to be consistent time for hours, which is very hard to come by. Mm-hmm. And so I push it off. It's, it's hard. And so the books, at least it was little chunks of writing so I could break it down into those. And then the most recent book was actually I worked with the writer. So I basically, she interviewed me. I gave her all the ideas and she wrote the bulk of the book and then I wrote a couple essays in it. And it was great because I could tell her all the ideas I wanted in the book and she could write it. Oh, that's awesome. Accessible. And then, you know, the end result had both of our names on it and it was very much my ideas but very much her writing. And I, I love that because she made it accessible to people who are maybe as, as um, you know, as into it as you and I are. And it's hard because if you get to this level where you're like, oh, this stuff I'm also passionate about. And you talk to somebody who's not, they're kind of like, what? what? Yeah. I don't even know where to start. You know, and so it's great because she could, she was an outsider to it. So she was able to bring that mindset to it. And wow. That. That's so, a really, that's a really cool way to do something right there. Well, and I love collaboration anyway. And it was a really great experience. I was really, I really loved the end result. That was the design act of the handbook. Um, and, and really felt like that book uh, is super accessible to anybody at any level. Um, and you can already be the activist and come to it, but certainly if you're the student or you're the, you're the designer who's just come across this concept, that you could read that and be like, yeah, this is exciting. Um, and I could write my pieces of it, my story, and, and feel comfortable writing that, but not feel like I've got to interview people and you know write at a level that I'm not comfortable writing at. Um, yeah. So That's awesome. Well, so on top of all this, like, I didn't know what this was for years. I, I would see Carol Brown reposting things about this. But the League of Space Pirates, what, what is this? <laughs> so the League of Space Pirates is, is yet another of my projects. But this is my ultimate backburner personal project that gets sort of shunted to the side as I'm busy with deadlines that I constantly take away at for a decade. And basically, this is sort of a high-concept thing. I love science fiction. Um, and so I've always had this idea about, like, reaching that and my activism as well. Uh, and so it started as an idea of sort of a fake movie, like I'd make a trailer, which never happened, but then it turned into a bigger storyline that includes this concept of this anti-corporate band of space pirates who masquerade as a rock and roll band to travel the galaxy um, fighting uh, the evil corporation, Uberport. So the, the band, which is also called League of Space Pirates, in comic book logic, um, because they actually are the League of Space Pirates as well, uh, became a real band. And so then I started performing shows and recording music with the group of folks who were excited by this project. And it's just continued to grow. Um, at this point, we've got a bunch of different things happening. Uh, we do a monthly live webcast from the ship uh, where the band plays and has guests on and we interview them. Uh, we have a full-length album that's being uh, mixed right now and we're hopefully going to put out by the end of the year. Um, and all of it is about sort of playing in this science fiction universe, spreading this meme of this sort of, how do you, you know, the, the anti-corporate idea in the future, why does it express where, you know, the, the biggest corporations are now one giant, massive one that controls all aspects of their lives. The best science fiction, of course, is about um, what's happening right now and responding to it. So it's sort of a fun way to talk about. And it's a topic a lot of science fiction talks about, but it's it's fun. And it also is a, is a great excuse for people to do something they might, not get to do otherwise than they want to do. And so, you know, especially people who make art or play music or whatever. And right now I'm actually working with a bunch of writers who are making short stories inspired by the, the universe and the music that we've created. And then I'm working with a bunch of artists to create stencils that we're going to give away online for free. And so it's just, it's a, it's just a sort of a catch-all for fun, creative work that doesn't fit in any of the rest of the frames of what I'm doing. 
and gives me an outlet, uh, yet another outlet. Um, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's so like you're creating like a parallel universe, basically, to discuss this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, you know, again, I, I kind of have to talk about this stuff in whatever, wherever I am, whatever form, but this is the, the super fun version of it. You know, if I can play rock and roll music and have a good time. And so it's not, it's not punk rock in the way that like, you know, here are these super important issues and I'm going to sing about a song. It's like, oh, these are just rock and roll songs that this band happens to play, but the band is in, embraced in the, the universe that is, that they're, in which they are dealing with these issues on another level. So it's all very subtle right now in, in, in a lot of ways. Like when you encounter the, the live from space broadcast, you know, they keep railing against Uber Corp here and there in small ways, but because they're the band performing and sharing stuff, it's all subtle. <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's, and it's just fun. There's no client, there's no, you know, gallery. I mean, it's just, it's totally outside of all of that. And that concludes part three of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview was recorded on May 13, 2014. things in part four of our four-part interview with Noah Scalin. Enjoy. So how do you manage your time? <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, you have a lot going on. I do. Um, and, well, it was a lot easier before I had a kid uh, because I would just work all the time, do projects on the weekend and evenings, and I mm. definitely learned to, to condense all of that. Um, so I'm just very efficient with it. I, I prioritize stuff, and, you know, like something like Space Pirate gets, gets little incremental work done every week, a couple hours here and there. And what I learned was that, you know, if you can set up big ideas and break them into really small pieces, you can just pick away at those pieces, and even if they don't seem like much, they still add up, which is, you know, a lesson I learned with Skull a Day, was that I just made a little skull art every day, and then it became this huge thing. So with Space Pirate or any other project, it's like, you know, I set my deadlines, I set up the little parameters of the things I need to get done, and I just check them off the list as I go, and, and I'm constantly busy, but I'm busy doing things that I love doing. It's all fun. It's all about, you know, again, about passion. You know, I think, I think that's something that is is probably the biggest, and you know, there's a romantic side to it. it. the The biggest misconception about art is that it's this ruleless place. It works much better when you have like something to bump up against, especially. I think for artists, because a lot of artists they they tend to want to tell the boundary to go fuck itself at some level. And, and so they, they, they want to push up against it and challenge it. And I think as a creative person, the worst place to be in is, is kind of like that blank paper with something where there isn't, but even, even with the paper, at least you have the borders. You right. know what I mean, there's a limit to like how much paper you have and what size. Right. Like as a creative person, I work so much better when I have like, I know the format. I, I know, I know more because that's where I can, 
push more. That's where I can like expand, get into a richer detail, you know? And I, I think also that's a good reason for collaboration too, because it's like when you're left to your own devices to a certain extent, you're kind of left to your own interpretation of things. And when you're able to kind of like bounce off someone else's, that's kind of a boundary too, because whether you like what they're saying or not, you're, you're dealing with this other element that's coming in there. That's kind of helping you steer, I guess, at some thing. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically outlining some of the key concepts that are in the, the unstuck book. I was telling you about this sort of oh, cool. core ideas of, of creativity that I really, became aware of doing my project that I hadn't really cataloged before. You know, I, I, I did always think like, oh, if only I had more money or more time, I could do a better job for my clients or for myself. And then, yeah, realizing, no, in fact, there's all those limitations that made me, like exactly what you're saying, that having to push against them made me more creative. And, and I start all my work now with those limitations. I'm always saying, you know, what, can I, what parameters can I set up by which I'm forced to work a certain way because that's going to motivate me. Mm. Uh, and then, and, and then one of the other big ones I talk about is the idea of collaboration. That my work was way better once I started collaborating because collaboration for me, you know, it's never about two people having two ideas and, you know, individually having one idea each and they come together and have two ideas. It's always that you end up with something you never imagined, either person imagined, that before, you know. Right. You start bouncing back and forth and things build and develop. And then at the end, you're like, wow, look at this thing we made. I didn't even know we were capable of this. It's an amazing experience, and, and I, I, I like to embrace that, and I do it as, I try to do it sooner in the process now than I have in the past. Even Space Pirates, you know, is an entirely collaborative project in, in a variety of ways. You know, the universe that I started, so much of it was developed by other people, and even the fact that we're doing a show now came from having rehearsals with my band and talking about playing shows and what a pain it was to cart all our equipment to a club to have 10 people standing around and being the you know, second band, and it was just like... And so we're like, why don't we just do it here? Let's make the rehearsal space into a set, and we'll have a show. And I'm like, great. I love it. So now we don't have to, you know, to t- go anywhere. All our equipment is already set up, and our set is already set up. And then you can tune in and watch us play live. You know, let's, oh, so that's video? Free. Yes. So, yeah, it's a live video feed. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and we, you know, we're learning as we go the technical stuff, and it's a, it's a fun mess. Um, but we get people watching all over the world instead of, you know, the 10 people in town that you have to beg to come out every time you want to play a show and be like, all right, come again. And here's again, we were playing again, you know, and then having to coordinate just carting equipment around, which is a pain because we're not just doing, you know, guitar drums thing. We're doing sets and costumes and lights and it's just complicated. And it's so much easier in this. Uh, but that entirely came from that collaborative experience of working with with the band of people who were contributing ideas and developing together. And, you know, my, my goal with the live performance thing was not to have to worry about preciousness, which is another thing I talk about in my books, but it's like this idea of like perfectionism with your mm-hmm. work because, you know, if I'm trying to edit a video of us performing every month, it would take me a month to do it and I'd be pissed off and Right. And the way, you know, it's just like all this work and then nobody would look at it and be like, why did I spend all this time doing this? And, you know, getting multiple takes because I didn't like how we did it. I mean, with the live show, it's like, it is what it is. We do it. We're done. Everybody had a good time. Clap, you know, we're finished. People watch it. We put it up online. It exists. Then we move on and we keep making more episodes and then we get better. Like you're doing with the podcast, you know, it's like, you know, you, you do it over time and you're going to get better at it. But if you just sit there trying to get that first episode right, you know, you're not going to get better at making it. 
going forward, like where are you aimed at right now for, for, uh, the future of things you're doing? Um, you know, it's a lot of more of what I'm already doing. I think I'm, I've been sort of in the process of refining down to what do I like to spend my time doing because I have a lot of I'm doing and a lot of it that interests me. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, I want to make more books. I want to make more art. I want to make more stuff that, that I want to make. And so even with the client stuff, I'm starting to shift that more to commissions rather than strict sort of graphic design, graphic art solutions. I'm really like, let me make art for you. Mm-hmm. And so finding clients that want that. Um, where it's appropriate to do that, um, and finding ways to to have excuses again because I need that those limits of excuses to make art. So whether that's setting up gallery exhibitions where I'm like, okay, now I have a deadline because I promised this gallery I'm gonna have art for them, um, but setting up a series of, of you know things like that. So you know, my my future focus is definitely on making art in a variety of ways, whether that's commissions for people, whether that's self-directed stuff for exhibitions, whether that's in the form of a book, or whether that's in the form music and other entertainment through this Facebook project. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Noah. Um, Yeah, you're very welcome. That concludes part four of our four-part interview with Noah Scaland. I'd like to thank Noah for taking the time to talk with me, and I hope you enjoyed listening as well. All of our interviews are available at variousthings.org. This interview is recorded on May 13th, 2014. Thanks for listening.